This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 812, A Conversation with Chris Claremont. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 812. It's a conversation with Chris Claremont. If you want to check out my first conversation with Chris, however, uh, where we do a little bit more of a wide-ranging uh, look at his career in comics, uh, you can check out episode 260. Uh, it's back from April 13th, 2015, uh, when it was first posted, uh, so you can check that out. Um, now, this time around, we, we spent a little bit more time talking specifically about him writing The Fantastic Four, although we do talk about some of his upcoming projects and recent work as well. Um, I will uh, apologize at the end of the episode um, ended up kind of cutting off plus the audio quality drops down and you start hearing a lot of outside noises um, outside because uh, just stuff was going on so I do apologize for that so I've tried to clean it up and at least kind of clip it a little um, but if it just kind of feels like the episode ends without a proper kind of goodbye with Chris, uh, it's because uh, the device completely dropped out and um, I ran out of power it was, it was, a, it was a whole thing. Uh, you don't need to know about that though so um, so so the episode will just kind of end, and I'll, I'll put uh, the bumper music at the end, so at least you'll know that you know the episode is over, um, and that was it. Um, but uh, it was great to talk to Chris. Uh, he's always a good sport. He, uh, you know, obviously is not a not uh, a stranger doing interviews, but it was nice to be able to talk about something a little bit different than just the classic kind of X Men discussion. Not that um, I don't love talking about X Men as well, but it was interesting to kind of get into his Fantastic Four and how he was thinking. He's such an interesting writer in terms of how he kind of approaches things, and definitely has a, a sense of optimism and. Um, enthusiasm which is uh, nice to nice to hear anyways this was a, a fun conversation so uh, i'll get into it in just a moment you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate the show on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on stitcher uh, upcoming episodes uh working on having chuck austin michael lark uh, Ron Garney, unfortunately, has been postponed, but we at least are, we are going to have, as I said, uh, uh, Michael Lark and Chuck Austin should be on the show soon. We're trying to work on getting Eric and Julia Leewald back on the show. They're the ones who are the showrunners of the X-Men animated series who have a new book that's coming out in October. So I'm hoping that uh, they'll be coming on the show and still working on future guests as well. Uh, but uh, thanks for listening, and let's jump right into the conversation as I sit down with the legendary Chris Claremont. Enjoy. Chris, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Where are you today? Uh, so far, so good. So far, so good. That's all we can, I guess, can hope for these days. Um, you were actually on the show five years ago, so it's nice to have you back. You were one of the first people <laughs> I ever interviewed, so I, uh, I, I, I hesitate to even. I was trying. I was going to go back and listen to it. It's like I don't even know if I could listen to myself five years ago doing an interview because I've become a lot better at it. So hopefully, uh, you agree. <laughs> okay, doke. Okay, doke. Um, so before I actually get into the main thing I actually wanted to talk to you about, which was uh, your Fantastic Four run from the late 90s, um, obviously recently we've heard about new projects coming out from you in December. We have uh, an issue of the new Wolverine, I guess, Red, Black, and White book. Um, what can you tell us about that? Because obviously that's of interest because I believe you're reuniting with uh, Salvador La Roca. Is that correct? Yes. Now, what is it like to kind of come back together with him? Because obviously you guys have worked on numerous projects together, but obviously that mm-hmm. has been some time since you've worked together, I guess. Mm, not really. No? Uh, uh, what have I we done here? Well, I'm, I'm working 
I've been working with them on a project about which I can say very little. Okay. But as you can see from the cover that Marvel set out for, I guess, one of the uh, Christmas specials, mm -hmm. uh, he did the cover for that, which has, which is sort of the follow-up to the last scene of uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's and My New Mutants. Mm-hmm where Hella promises Danny that they will talk soon about Danny's status in, in the Omniverse, and this is that story. When so, Salvador, um, we've got a couple of things coming out, yeah. um, about which I can <laughs> say almost nothing. That's okay. I'm curious... But, yes, we, it, it's some brilliant, brilliant work, and... Um, Just trying to think. There, um, what the hell I've got on lock in in the pipeline? Well, the Wolverine definitely. Mm -hmm. um, what I can, you know, working with Salva is great. I'm 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 always up for that. As far as the story goes, it's a um, sort of Logan and. Uh, Kitty or cat, I don't know how they're referring to her these days, <laughs> returned to Mondrapur for what they thought was some a fun time and things go wrong. <laughs> or as long as they can go in ten pages. <laughs> so it is just a ten page story? Afraid so. So how do you find I mean like I mean obviously you've been working in the industry a long time and you've done stories for ranging the gamut in terms of length but how do you kind of find that that exercise of doing a, a 10 page tighter story like that well it's depends on the story depends on the characters it, clearly it requires the, a lot more reader awareness than a larger story uh, especially today where the concept of establishing characters and circumstance for readers who may be unfamiliar with either is less, I don't know, relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, like with any story, the, the basic rule is get on, say your piece, get off as efficiently and uh, evocatively and powerfully as possible. <laughs> when I mean, you and Sal obviously have worked together a lot and extensively. So how has your collaboration or like, do you have a kind of a shorthand or, I mean, obviously you have a visual sense of what he's going to bring you that you may, maybe you didn't when you first started working with him 20 years ago. Do you find your scripts have uh, changed in terms of how you set things up because you know how he's going to deliver it? Depends on the scene, depends on the characters. It depends on how we are presenting the characters. Mm. Um, for the most part, I can just sketch. I can I can present things in a fairly minimalist uh, structure. Certainly, mm -hmm. as far as choreography goes, unless I, there's a specific uh, moment or or situation that needs to be presented. But uh, nine times nine times out of ten, uh, his judgment is. Fairly impeccable. 
Now, you, you have kind of an interesting perspective, too, in terms of watching him mature as an artist because, you were, you know, you've been, you've been working with him on and off for 20 years. How have you how, how has it been for you as a collaborator to see how his style has evolved over time? And again, being able to kind of see how that impacts your own work and how it ends up looking. sure I can answer that because I I'm not sure at the same time how much of the evolution of style is his choice or his choice in terms of how he's relating to the projects that he's working on mm. um, how he handled Star Wars for example uh, might it's he's either trying to present Lucasfilm concepts in the best way possible, or this is his own instinct. That I, I don't know. I, all I know is I I will give him what I see in my eye as the most effective moment, and uh, 9.99 times out of 10, what he gives back is um, either what I envisaged, envisaged or something far, far better. Okay. I mean, and I guess it helps that you guys have a trust and the ability to kind of, you know, you know what you can, when you can lean on him. So, you know, you're, there's less of guesswork. You know what you're going to get from him. Um, well, it depends. I mean, I, I, one aspect of... Mm, no, I don't think that's altogether the case. I mean, in the Wolverine... 10-pager, um, what I thought I was getting in terms of the adversaries turned out to be far different from what he presented, and what he presented was so good, uh, I went with that. There was no point in saying, redraw this. Mm-hmm. Um, what I got in terms of this other project is affected by the fact that the characters were some of them were characters he was totally familiar with a couple weren't and you know so there was a little bit of back and forth on the ones he wasn't familiar with but at the end um, it's like with any creator, writer or artist it's rare that you can jump into a concept or um, a story moment and get it, nail it from the first, from panel one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider myself part of that. It usually takes people a couple or three issues to get used to the characters, to get comfortable with how you want to stage them in, in a scene or a moment uh, or just present them. The, the significant challenge in terms of a one-part story is you don't have that luxury. Mm. You have to nail it from page one, panel one. And again, sometimes you hit it over the wall, sometimes not. it just falls a little short and it's a fly ball out. Um, that said, with Salva... As I said, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, it's it's a home run. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious about the upcoming, as you mentioned, the, the Chris Claremont anniversary special, which, first of all, did you ever think you'd have your name prominently on it like that, like part of the title? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the first time, but I think what I never imagined was having a 50th anniversary special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least not for another 20 years. <laughs> Now, what, what is that? I mean, it's so interesting. Like, so there's a bunch of questions I want to ask about this, but obviously working in the industry for 50 years, like what, like does, 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 that, does, does that even sound like a real number to you? Does it feel like that? No, it doesn't. So I, I have a question about that kind of 50 years. So you've worked with a lot of different people throughout that time, obviously. I mean, you've outlasted a lot, I guess. Um, what, an interesting question for me is, you know, you've worked with a lot of different editors-in-chiefs, and I'm curious if I can quickly kind of get some sense of what your feelings was working under, either directly under these people or just with them kind of masterminding the company at Marvel and just what your takeaways were from what they meant to comics during your tenure. Does that make sense? Well, you have to understand that the first editor-in-chief I worked with was Stan. Of course. So, when you're, when I look at everyone who's subsequent to him, that, that's a ridiculous, impossibly high bar to try and, and top. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Stan's approach was different from Roy's approach. Roy's approach was different from Jerry Conway's approach, even though Jerry only lasted about like 36 minutes. <laughs> um, and theirs was different from Archie Goodwin's, and his was different from Jim Shooter's. Um, it, everything evolves, everything changes. The Marvel that I spent the first 20 years of my career working for, 25 years from the moment Stan hired me, is. Un- incomparably different from the Marvel of the 21st century, mm-hmm. just in terms of of the of who was running the sh- the shop and and how they approached uh, the business. So it's I don't know if it's a <sighs> at least for me I don't. I'm not sure how I can make a valid comparison. Mm-hmm. Jim Shooter brings brought assets, some significant assets, to the to his tenure. By the same token, he had at the same time some significant problems. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, but again, measuring all of this. You know, how do you measure Jim against someone like Archie Goodwin? If, if I had my way, Archie would have stuck around happily ever after and still be boss. <laughs> um, what if I change the question? What if I say, what would you say is a, a key, something you learned, or something like, you know, a key learning or teaching or something you learned from each of these these individuals? So, no, so not comparing them to each other, but saying one key thing that you kind of took from them in terms of how they... Well, I mean, the key, but, but see, that... That's the point. You go back to I go back to Stan, and Stan's attitude was very, very simple. He had three rules, three basic rules that he applied to everyone, every creator who worked for him: do good work, get it in on time, and don't be a pain in my ass. <laughs> uh, 
and from Stan's perspective, any two out of three, you could keep your job. He'd prefer all three. <laughs> but, you know, any two out of three. So you could be brilliant and on time, great. You could be brilliant and a pain in the ass, okay. You could be on time and a pain in the ass. <laughs> because on time books are an absolute necessity. You know, or you could be all three. But Stan's point about don't be a pain in my ass was that I'm fighting too hard to keep the company alive. Mm. I'm hiring you to do a job. I trust you to do that job. If you cannot do that job, if you are a pain in the ass, if you cannot get the book in on time, if you cannot do great work, I will fire you and get someone who can. Outside of that, I will leave you alone. You know, I'm hiring you to be a writer. Be a writer. Um, I think that you the, the, the negative side of that approach is not all writers are on operate on Stan's level or Roy Thomas's level. So the degree of variety was fairly extreme. Um, that said, if you could hit hit the ball over the fence, you you could you know you had a lot of you could be invaluable. Um, Roy was, I think, in many respects, of that philosophy. Again, it, it's like the Marvel of 1970, 1968 to 1975 was indescribably different from the Marvel that exists today, or even the Marvel that existed at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. Um, because for the most part there was a significant level of trust and independence you know if if you could do a book correctly if you could do a book that worked you got left alone and that's not the reality that exists today um, again, Archie had a significant amount of trust in the people, both the editors who were now working under him or working in you know, subordinate to him, and the talent that was working for them. So ideally, if you were a creator, you wanted to find an editor with whom you were most simpatico. In my case, I was incredibly lucky in the, that I had two in a row in, in Louise Simonson and Anna Senti. And together the three of us seminally defined the X-Men as, as it existed in those days. Um, after Anne, things got a little more challenging. Mm. But that's, again, the nature of publishing. You don't always get the people you want in the positions you would ideally like them to be. And 
when I came back to Marvel in 1998, Bob and I were back together again. But at this point, he was editor-in-chief and I was uh, vice president editorial director. So I had I was dealing with Marvel both from a position of being a writer and subordinate to an editor and as a boss. So that things get complicated at that point. But then uh, when I took over in, in 01, again, things got more complicated. Well, simpler and yet more complicated mm-hmm. because um, Joe Quesada had no use for me in an editor- from an editorial perspective. And then basically I was... I was on the outside working with Marvel solely from that point on as a writer. Hmm. Now I'm curious about in and around that period. So again, when you come back to Marvel in 98, so I, I always forget that again, that you were not just a writer, but you're also working like within the company and a different position. What was that process like of bringing you back at that point? Cause obviously Marvel was kind of in you know, free fall in the kind of the mid nineties. So what was it like coming back and you know, what, what was the state of things when you kind of came back? Bob called. I said yes. We cut a deal. <laughs> Simple as that? Mm-hmm. And in terms of writing, when you start writing Fantastic Four, originally you were working, I guess, with Mark Powers and then with Bobby Chase as editor. What was that process like? And, you know, were they coming to, coming to you and saying, hey, we have this book open. We think this you'd be a good fit for it? Or, like, how did that kind of come no, about? No, I mean... Basically, the only stipulation when I came back is I didn't want to go anywhere near the X-Men. Mm. I, I would write whatever they had, but I would not write... I did not wish to write any of the X-Canon books. My feeling being that I'd done it for the better part of 17 years. I'd been away from the canon at that point for seven years, six years. Mm-hmm. And it had changed they were not the characters I left and I didn't want to I didn't want to play with anyone else I didn't want to step on anyone else's toes mm-hmm. especially as a boss so I did a I did a Wolverine arc for starting I think with 125 mm-hmm. but that was as close as I wanted to come and then uh, as far as the FF it was a, a a matter of pure serendipity. Um, Oh, oh, for God's sakes. Um, The the series had been rebooted with Alan Davis and... um, Scott Lobdell. Scott Lobdell, thank you. Uh, And it looked, I mean, Alan Davis, it looked great. Mm Mm-hmm. But as soon as, for some reason, which I cannot forget, I cannot remember, forget, <laughs> after it, after that first arc was done, which I think was issue two, maybe three, uh, Scott decided he wanted to do something else. I'm not sure if he left Marvel, but he definitely left the FF. Um, no, he was still at Marvel. And uh, so I took it over. And at the same time, Alan left as well. So it came. We came in, I think, with issue three, which was tying up the loose ends of Scott's opening. Mm-hmm. But it was me and Salva, 
and it was extraordinary. Now, it's a great run that does a lot of different things, and you bring a lot of different elements that maybe traditionally weren't always Fantastic Four elements. You bring in, you know, the tech net, things that you had also used in other places. What was it like to uh-huh. kind of, kind of? it was almost like a remix, like you're bringing in other elements from elsewhere, but using them with the Fantastic Four and kind of seeing what worked until you eventually bring back Doctor Doom with, you know, issue 25. What was it like kind uh-huh. of doing an FF that wasn't, you know, just using the typical rogues gallery and really trying to explore new directions? Fun. Yeah? <laughs> well, you have to understand. I mean, the FF was the book that brought me into comics in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was walking home from school way, way back. And I picked up, I was stopped, I stopped by the local newsagent to get a Coke. And FF 48 was on the rack. And I picked it up and flipped through it, and I thought, huh, this looks good. I like the characters. I like the story. Jack was hit, starting to hit his absolute prime as as storyteller on, on the FF. Stan was top of the heap. And, you know, in the space of three issues, you have, you have the Silver Surfer, you have... The Watchmen, you have Galactus. Uh, it was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> and then you also, and the series, and the arc ends with Johnny Storm going off to university. I mean, it was like everything. And my surprise was each time I got to page 18, my reaction was, what the hell happens next? <laughs> So then I liked Stan and Jack on the FF so much, I figured, what else did they do? Well, Thor. So I picked up Thor. And then I looked to see what else was cool from Marvel. Well, there was The Avengers by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. So that's where I got started sliding down that slippery slope. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I've always had a soft spot for the FF. But this, the thing I, I loved both most about this opportunity was with the X-Men, it was, it was me from the start. I mean, yes, we were rebooting an existing series, so we were technically 60 issues into original material mm-hmm. because from, I guess, 61 to 93, it was all reprints. But the foundation, that was the foundation, but the structure we were building on top of it was brand new. Um, you know, Dave Cockham had designed four new characters, um, plus Wolverine, the Wolverine, uh, about which people knew absolutely nothing. We just knew their powers, what they looked like, where they came from. Everything else was gold. Un- untouched un- untouched country so from a writer's standpoint it was the the ultimate gift especially in terms of marvel because at that point there were no there was no new series material you know the avengers were established the ff were established mm-hmm. 
Spidey was established, Daredevil was established, all of the Marvel pantheon had been around for 10 years, fundamentally. Doctor Strange. You were, you were jumping onto established material and, and trying to find your own way of presenting it. Whereas with the X-Men, it was all, from the foundation moment, all new stuff. So Dave and I could, Dave had created it, but then we could build the characters in whatever way we wanted. So within six issues, we had the hundredth issue and Dave and I creating Phoenix. And we were off and running. So for a creator to have that baseline opportunity is unparalleled. It's not like coming in and saying, hey, you're writing Superman. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're the 50th guy on the list. Same with Batman. Same with, oddly enough, The Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four was the book that got me hooked on comic, Marvel Comics. And I was writing it. It's not like I'm the, I'm, I can revolutionize the form because there, are, there were at least a dozen or more writers ahead of me or behind me filling in the gap between Stan and me. So what I could do was look at the concept, look at the way Salva presents the concept, and figure out what I could do that was different and cool. And, you know, as the saying goes, off and running. <laughs> it's like, and it, it all comes back to fundamental writing. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? Who are these people? Yes, it's Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Ben. What does that mean? You know, who, where do they live? Well, not the Baxter building anymore, apparently. They live, um, well, in, as it evolved, they live on Pier 4, Manhattan Pier 4, which just conveniently happened to be next to uh, Stuyvesant High School. On, uh, down on, on the Lower West Side. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, well, let's find out. Uh, how do they function in the real world? Well, you know, as, it, as things turned out, because Reed is a genius and is always doing genius stuff, Sue actually keeps the shop running. Mm -hmm. She pays the bills. She pays the taxes. She deals with the city. She is the the manager of this genius enterprise. What is Ben? Ben's the muscle. What is Johnny? Johnny's the pain in the ass. <laughs> but that's it. You, you know, you take all these elements and then you figure, okay, how can we, where do we go from here? Well, away we went. Uh, out of space, cross time, different realities, uh, surprise, I'm your daughter. What? <laughs> Valeria Von Doom. What? Yeah. My dad's Dr. Doom. No, he's not. And you're my mom. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Well, what does this all mean? Well, stick around. We'll, we'll show you. Um, it's, you know, then genetically discovering that she is 
Sue's daughter mm. with a secret. What's this? You know, I mean, she knocks on the door of the Latvian embassy and says, Hi, I'm Valeria von Doom. Ha! Try that one again. <laughs> you know, it's... It, it's... The ability, the fun part of it was I didn't have to take it altogether seriously. I'm writing the Fantastic Four. No, it was like, holy shit, I'm writing the Fantastic Four. What cool thing can I do next? So... It, you know, well, here comes, uh, uh, Cree, what's his face? Uh, no. Ronan. Ro- what? Ronan the Accuser. Yeah. What does he do? He grabs Sue. Why? Because he wants to do blah, blah, blah. And what does he do when he grabs her? He infects her with a genetic virus and things start going weird. Because Salva can really draw that cool stuff. And, and, you know, it's putting them in mortal peril and f- having them try to find a way out of it, but each step along the way make it seem more and more impossible that they'll succeed. And even though the readers will confidently know, ah, they'll get out of it, the characters don't. They can hope. But there's Sue who's morphing weirdly because of what Ronan's done to her. And she's scared to death because she doesn't know she'll survive. Um, you know, it's opening the door in your pajamas because, you know, it's first thing in the morning. And there's a news crew from NPR with a <laughs> camera. You're being photographed. Holy shit. <laughs> you know? And it's like, how come no one warned me of this? No one, where's my appointment book? Uh, oh, sorry, forgot. You know, things like that. Uh, cross time, things going crazy on a cross time basis and, you know, giant invisible tidal waves are, are drowning Manhattan. And at the end, but at the end, I mean, this is the part I love, I, I really wanted to have fun with. Doom and Reed have to join forces to save everybody. And they do. But there's a cost. Whoops. What's the cost? Reed's trapped in the armor. And Doom's thrown out of the armor. Which, boy, is he pissed. (laughs) But from Reed's perspective, he gets to play Doctor Doom for a while. Which he finds really cool. Hence, that leads to the, the marriage of Sue and Reed. She becomes the Baroness Von Doom. And suddenly, where Rachel fits into the situation becomes clear. She's not Doom's daughter. Well, she is technically Doom's daughter. But the Doom that is her father is actually Reed. So she's actually a Richard's top, bottom, inside and out. But then Reed starts being seduced by the armor. Because, you know, Doom's been wearing it day in and day out for goodness knows how long. The armor is an extension of himself. And when Reed figures out a way to break out of the armor, (coughs) he doesn't want to. And suddenly then, Sue and the other members of the FF have to figure out, uh uh-oh, 
how do we save Reed from himself? And that's more of a challenge than you one might think because it is, after all, Reed who can think, outthink anybody faster than a speeding bullet. And just when you think that's not enough, well, remember when when Namor, the Submariner, had the hots for Sue? <laughs> and boom! We bring that back. So, I mean, it's it's being able to play with anything and everything. You know, and with Salva having an artist who can convey it. You know, you go to a planet where where the FF are are, are world-class bad guys. You know, and, and our guys have to fake it. Well, okay. Or you go to another world where they're I think, as I recall, they're trapped inside a giant computerized uh, storage or uh, computer. Maybe I'm mis- I don't know if I'm, I could be. No, mis- no, you're right because there's a lot of simulations in there, so you're all right. Yeah, <laughs> but that's it. You know, I mean, he could give you uh, full-page splashes or double-spread panoramas that were just breathtaking. And so visually and conceptually, it was just more fun than, than I'd had in a long time. And the, the, I mean, the thing is, the Reed-Sue-Doom situation was one I wanted to carry on for a lot longer because what I wanted to have happen at the end is, you know, Doom teams with the FF to get to free read so we spent I wanted to spend like two or three issues or a mini arc with Doom actually a legitimate hero superhero appropriately disguised of course but becoming a hero and amused at how easily the Vox Populi come to in Doom's terms worship him (laughs) or at least thank him for his heroism but then when Reed gets freed from the armor and Doom gets it back, the deal, you know, he reneges on the deal with Sue and won't give her a divorce. <laughs> so she's stuck being the Baroness Von Doom, consort of the Baron Von Doom. And where, how do we get that resolved? So I, I wanted to play with this for years, you know, years. Yes, years, and just and even after that, once that is resolved, how does Reed reestablish himself to himself, if nothing else? I mean, this actually goes back to the the FF X Men crossover that I did with um, John Bogdanov, yeah, where Doom. You know, where Franklin finds a book at the bottom of a of a chest that sat, you know, at the bottom of the, the storage unit for years and years, and in it is Reed's diary, and in the diary is an entry that suggests that he knew exactly what was going to happen when the FF went into space, and he did the, he he did it deliberately. 
to turn his best friends into super beings because for the right reasons the world would need superheroes there was there was too much of a potential threat in the omniverse they had to t- they had to take the first step but to do it he would lie to the people he cared most about in the world so suddenly you have Reed, you know, Sue's ready to kill him, as is Ben. And the horror for Reed is he he doesn't remember if he wrote that or not. It's it's him. This is his writing. It's his writing style. How could you know? But it's such a it's so wrong for him, but it's so plausible for him. And he's being torn apart, but at the same time, they have to save the X-Men, etc., etc., etc. And the thing is, we give no clue throughout the story as to whether or not this is legit. Until at the end, to resolve the story, Reed proves himself to be Reed, inside and out, and... Sue figure, you know, okay, she makes her decision. But the last scene is her and and Doom just having a chat over, over as Doom says, you know, a Latverian caviar is actually far superior to etc. <laughs> Have some. And basically she warns him off. You know, it's like, you should remember that the most dangerous cat in the in the family is the lioness, not the lion. The lion's got the hair. The lioness is the one who goes out and kills. You should remember that next time you take you take aim at my family. And I guess what I was trying to imply there is like what she's telling him is you come after us again like this and I'll kill you. And don't think I'm bluffing. Because Reed would never do that. But Sue is like, screw this. But, and Doom is going, ha 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 ha. <laughs> but he takes her seriously. And that was what I was trying to bring to the BFF is yet again, I'm, I'm pushing the female character to the forefront because. I think after, at that point, after 30 years of being Marvel Girl, you know, don't screw around with the wives. You know, because a lot of times that's a very dangerous place to be. And, you know, it it was also too much fun. And yet, she is conflicted because Namor is a real hottie. And if Reed (laughs) weren't there, she would have seriously been attracted so it's again it's playing with everybody it's you know finding new ways for Johnny to deal with the world or for Ben to deal with the world and how they deal with each other and how I what kind of weird ass stories can I come up with that would be fun that would perhaps entice and inspire a contemporary reader at that time 
the way Stan had, and Jack had done for me back in the 60s. Hmm. Well, I can say, I mean, I was reading these when they first were coming out, and they were they were definitely were exciting. I mean, all the Heroes Return books were exciting because they felt like getting back to who these characters were, and that's definitely what your your run felt like. But again, pushing it in a lot of new, exciting new areas and using characters that, again, were not typically seen in the Fantastic Four. Like you had the Fantastic Four, you know, dealing with Genosha, dealing with the TechNet. That's not what you would, you know, stereotypically think of as Fantastic Four, which makes it more exciting because you don't know how they're going to respond to certain things because you're used to other characters dealing with them. Well, but that's the whole point. If it's a world, let's play with it. And also, from my perspective, no one else was using all the stuff I'd created, so why not me? Which seems to be the tradition of Marvel. I create like a hundred. I mean, we were Marvel was figuring it out a couple, a few years ago. I think I'm somewhere north of five hundred characters, small, medium, and large, uh, that I've created. The scary part being that at least one, possibly two dozen of them are A plus. Major, major people, both in terms of the comics and of cinema. And it's just, you know, I think Disney at some at one point may have said, stop it. <laughs> uh, because they're just too many to use. You know, I've got all the, the characters I created when I came back on the X-Men in uh, 2000. But there you go. It's just, it's what I do, but it's what works best with the FF is just keep coming up with new guys because I find it, I, the thing I hate is, for example, why does every reboot of Superman and, or Batman have to start with the Joker? or with Superman, have to start with General Zod. I mean, give me a break. Come up with somebody new. Come Somebody better. Somebody that that excites me as audience. You know, I mean, it's, even with Doom, he's come back how many dozen times since Stan invented him? And like it or not, he's lost every time. Hmm. So the point, you know, again, going back to the X-Men FF, was the FF saved the day. They, they rest, you know, they, they find a way to, to save Shadowcat. Hurrah! But Doom doesn't really lose. There's no confrontation between the FF and Doom. He, he played a chess move. You know, out of, a chess move came to life out of nowhere. He played it to the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, he lost, but doesn't mean anything. That. Uh, it was just a throwaway for him. It was, a tra- it was an almost tragic event for the FF, but that's how Doom deals with it. You know, I'm gonna, just going to throw little darts at you. <laughs> and most of them will miss. But if I can get one to hit, ooh, that'll be fun. <laughs> so if I'm going to do Doom, I want to find a way to do it that way. If I'm going to bring back Galactus, I want to bring him back in a way that is the equal of FF50. 
Because otherwise, what's the point? It's like picking up the Silver Surfer and looking at issue two and thinking, holy cow, that's Mephisto. That's good. And yet, by his third appearance, 20 issues later, to me as a reader, he was a travesty. This little guy with a, you know, with like stubble wearing a trench coat and a hat. Ew. You know, it's the thing that Stan and John Buscema and Jack and Steve Ditko, the gift was the, the ability to create these awesomely iconic adversaries. But you have to find a way to, once you've created them, to use them with discretion because you don't want to devalue them. I mean, that was why in the X-Men, once Magneto got free, every time he came back, the first two times he came back, he kicked the X-Men's ass. Uh, because I wanted more than anything to establish in the reader's mind and the X-Men's mind how, how serious an adversary he was, how dangerous an adversary he was. So that by the time you got to 150, when he almost kills Kitty, it is a seminal moment. It's not just superheroes hitting each other and the good guys win. It's, you know, Storm standing over there and saying, you better pray she's all right or you're going to die, effectively. Mm -hmm. And he says, go ahead, kill me. I, I, I have by my actions proven I am not worthy of living. And then Storm goes, huh? He's serious. What? What's going on here? It, the same thing applies with the FF. You know, you can't keep going to Doom every week. Because after a while, nobody cares. So you've got to come up with other options, other characters, unexpected characters. So suddenly, in out of nowhere, you've got... Um, Oh, what? Not, you've got not only Gatecrasher's Technet, but, uh, oh, the Warwolves. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who I love. Yeah. Um, suddenly, out of nowhere, you've got this other dimensional iteration of Betsy, of Betsy Braddock, who's, like, kind of Asian. Why? Because she's from a world where China or Japan, I'm not sure which, can't remember actually, conquered the world. Um, that, you know, you, it's, it's the FF. Anything goes. But in the middle of that anything goes, you've got to spare time for, for Peter Parker and Johnny Storm to just be a pair of dicks. <laughs> I mean, they're having fun, but they're teenage, well, guys in their young 20s who've never gotten over the fact that they've been rivals, professional rivals their whole lives. And it's, you know, find a new way to tell the kinds of stories that that hooked me on comics. And again, that's that's what I was 
trying to do. So I'm curious about timeline here. So when 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 just when you're wrapping up or leaving FF, you do come back to the X Men for your first return. And as you said, like originally uh-huh. your edict was kind of a muck when near the X books. So what did change? The disadvantage of being a boss. It's like Bob said, you need to take one for the team. Mm. And, you know, it's not like as a freelancer I could say no. As a freelancer I could say no. As a boss I said, it's Liberty Jimmy. <laughs> if you if you were faced with that decision again, would you do the revolution run? Well, if I were faced with this decision again, I wouldn't quit the first place. Hmm. You know, that's. Uh, on the other hand, if we were both faced with this decision again, in retrospect, Bob wouldn't have made his decision either. Hmm. Because. You know, well, he was doing what he thought was best for the FF, for the X Men. Jim and Mark and you know the rest of what became the Image Cabal were figuring, why the hell? I just sold eight million copies. Why the hell am I working for Marvel? Why did I do it for myself and keep all the money? And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the, I mean, the, the regret in all of this was, you know, I signed on for Marvel literally a month, six weeks maybe, before um, Perlman took us bankrupt again, hmm. which was the game changer. You know, if we hadn't gone bankrupt then the opportunity wouldn't have existed for Ike to move in and, you know, the 21st century as we know it wouldn't have happened. But that's, you know, on the other hand, Perlman was sucking Marvel dry. You know, I mean, when when Caden sold us the first time, we were a $200 million company that was $80,000, had $80,000 of corporate debt. Frank Miller, Jim Byrne, and I could have paid it off out of royalties, or incentives, rather. When Shooter tried to buy it, he actually had the dominant bid. But everybody, the management at, at Marvel at that time knew that if he if he if he won if they'd given it to him the first thing he would have done was fire everybody hmm. because they'd fired him five you know three years earlier so they they sold it to um, whoever they did but they in turn sold it to Perlman and then Perlman spent the next three years you know as I said within two years we went from a small company with no debt to a $3 billion company with eight to $900 million in corporate debt, Oof. which on the face of it, no, on the face of it, it looked great, but then the crash hit 
and within three months, six months, we went from a $3 billion company with $800 million in debt to a one-point fractional company, billion-dollar company, with $900 million in debt. So effectively, we were, Marvel was functionally bankrupt. And then it became Clash of the Titans in terms of which billionaire would, would walk away with the company. And I think everyone at that point underestimated Ike, um, who played the game better than, than anyone anticipated. And when the dust settled, he had the company. And the last 20 years is on view for anyone to take notes. Fascinating. Before we let you go, um, I do have to ask, I mean... None of which has anything to do with the EFF, of course. No, no, but it, you know what? I, I, I find this stuff really fascinating, the kind of the behind the scenes, the things we don't always know that are actually happening. So that's why I'm curious about like how you originally came back, how you eventually kind of moved back into doing the X-Men, because obviously you came back on a few different occasions and, and did different books. Um, of the, the Revolution Era X-Men... The a few years later, when you were doing uh, like you had the X Men in the Savage Land around like two thousand four, two thousand five with House of M, you were doing tie-ins there through Uncanny, and then you also obviously had Extreme X Men a few years before that. Of the three, which would you say creatively did you enjoy the most? Oh, Extreme, totally. Yeah, because that's my book. The others were all. I mean, <sighs> everything subsequent to to Extreme was. You know, just me. We need something done. I do it. Uh, extreme was my. You know, when I le- when I finished as as executive editor, uh, this was sort of my exit package. Me and Salva, Extreme. What hadn't been anticipated is that both Salva and I are really fast and we had the book we were something like seven issues ahead before the first issue came out which created something of a panic with higher authority of the company and I think that with Grant doing New X-Men and um can't even remember who was doing Uncanny then. No, I think no one in-house or in management had any confidence in Extreme, and they really didn't care. And to everyone's surprise, uh, Salva and I went out and had our found our audience again and kicked ass with it and had fun as I said so it's you know and again we would have happily kept going with Igor you know taking Salva's place when uh, he got pulled away to do Namor um, except that that was when uh Grant went back to D.C. and and Joe pulled the plug on on his entire restructuring of the X-Canon. And, you know, 
that was oh, when Extrema canceled and then Alan was brought in to do Uncanny, Alan Davis. And when they asked him who he wanted to work with as a writer, Alan said me. I mean, me, not him. <laughs> Which I think, again, was unanticipated. And it was, it was a whole hell of a lot of fun working with Alan. And when Chris Pachalo took over from him, I thought this was like, holy cow. Best news ever. Because Chris is a remarkable storyteller and, and visual presenter. Uh, and the, the story concepts I began playing with, working with him, I mean, for my mind, 21 Seconds is probably one of the best, I feel is one of the best stories I've written this century. Um, and Chris, I couldn't think, I can't think of anyone who could have done it better than Chris did. Except that the, in the midst of all this, Marvel had other ideas and, um, you know, pulled the plug on, on me as writer of the series and uh, that was that. So that's basically the last time I've ever really come close to uh, the mainstream canon. Sense. Last question I'll ask you, and I'm sure you have answered this already elsewhere, and I, I, I have purposely not one of the, because I knew I was going to talk to you, I, I didn't want to see your answer anywhere, but I mean, with, huh. the, with the recent New, New Mutants movie, have you seen it? Do you, have, do you have a desire to see what what they've done? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've only been waiting five years. <laughs> no, it's... Sorry, I don't know if you've heard. There's this problem in, <laughs> in America I was curious. sort I was, of plague. I was curious if they would have found a way to, to, to at least get you to see it somehow. Considering, I mean, it's, it's you know, pulling from your characters, your work so dr- dramatically I was, I was just I was thought that maybe yeah, they would have been like hey let's let Chris see this at least send me a DVD yeah that's that's more what yeah, I'm getting at I would have thought that too I would have thought that too but apparently I was wrong you know but that's there you go I mean my problem the rip pro, the there is not an open movie theater within a hundred miles of where I am much less an open movie theater that seems to be, you know, presenting new mutants. I mean, I there's one I think in there are a couple in there were one or two in Connecticut, but to get up there to see it and back would have ended up costing something like three hundred bucks without buying the ticket. Oh wow! And even I am not that. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. So I guess I'll do what everybody else in the world does and wait for it to come out on DVD and watch it on the TV, which is not what I wanted because I, you lose the entire experience. And the fun of seeing it with an audience, I mean, that's what is even more annoying is there, there, there's no, there was no premiere. Because mm-hmm. um, it would have been fun to go out to L.A. and, you know, 
go down the walk of whoop-de-doo and get interviewed by Fox and everybody else and, and meet everybody. You know, that was, that was a ridiculous, fun evening uh, when Dark Phoenix opened. You know, my son and I went and had a, a, a great time. And it would have been nice to have the same thing happen with New Mutants, both for me, for me and Bill, for me and Bob. And didn't happen. Not only that, they spelt his name, Bob McLeod's name wrong. That's crazy. I saw that too. In the credits. Uh, so go figure. This, you know, this, the, I guess that means the film was starstruck from the very beginning. Um, you know, it's, there you go. Uh, hopefully at some point down the line, they'll get a chance to do it again. Maybe with Dark Phoenix, third time we'll be lucky. The charm. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, the problem, the heartbreak with Dark Phoenix, for me anyway, is that as a basic film, it's really pretty good. The problem is, the film that we see in the, in the cinema is like Jean Grey has a really bad day. Mm. Has nothing whatsoever to do with Dark Phoenix. Or Phoenix, for that matter. You know? Um, it's just, you know, it, it ran into conflicts that had I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but have you seen Captain Marvel? Yes. Okay. You know all that cool stuff she does in outer space? <laughs> yep. Well, turns out that a long time ago in a galaxy far away, Dave Cockrum and I were redesigning Carol Danvers. Well, redesigning, well, redesigning Carol Danvers. And Rogue had already gotten her powers as Ms. Marvel. But we wanted her to be really, really, really cool. And for the first time, to be her own person as a character. So we, we recreated her as binary. A little help from the brood. <laughs> and because we wanted binary to have cool powers and because the person we originally gave these powers to was dead, we gave her all of Phoenix's powers. Or at least powers that were analogous to Phoenix. Which was great. Because in comics, who the hell cares? <laughs> who notices? You know, binary's got cool powers. So does Phoenix. Well, they're kind of the same powers. Who the hell cares? You know, it's like, um, wait, Thor carries the hammer. Yeah, so does Beta Ray Bill. Okay, so does Captain America. Really? So does Jane Foster. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, they got a lot of hammers. The problem apparently turned out to be when, when Simon was starting production on 
on Dark Phoenix. This other company was starting production on this other film. More importantly, the corporation to whom the other company worked for was negotiating with the company that was producing X-Men to buy them. <laughs> so, even worse, turns out that Captain Marvel and Dark Phoenix had pretty much exactly the same third act. Yeah. Oh, you've heard this. I have heard it. Yeah, but it's it's, yeah. it's still it's still crazy. So, so Marvel suggested, like, well, didn't suggest. They told Fox change the third act. So you have to understand at this point, Dark Phoenix was done. So. As ever, you know, Dark Phoenix had just gone through, like, its first round of previews, release release previews, and I think it was December of 16, 17, and all of a sudden, wham, the film gets pulled from release. And no one knows why. Nobody's talking. And, of course, the internet went crazy. And all the the fan geeks said, it must really suck. <laughs> because God forbid there'd be any other reason. And it sat around for a year. Why? Because everybody in the cast had moved on to other show, films and other projects, and it took like six months, apparently, to get everyone together to shoot the last scene. So in Dark Phoenix, everything, starting with the train trip, is new, sh- new material. So the third act, the entire third act, is a reshoot. And the problem is, if you look at the third act, it's just everybody running around, punching, hitting, dying, punching, hitting, dying. <laughs> and, you know, and end of story, which is kind of not bad. I mean, everybody has that kind of moment in a James Bond film or whatever, but <clears throat> so what? And there's absolutely no reference to Phoenix anywhere in the movie, visually or textually. And so Captain Marvel comes out and it earns a billion dollars. And Avengers comes out and it earns a trillion (laughs) dollars. And Spidey comes out and it earns a billion dollars. And in the week between Avengers and Spidey, when the whole world is going to see Avengers for the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth time, Dark Phoenix shows up. And it does what the other X-Men movies has done, which is about 300 mil. And everyone goes, eh, it's kind of nice. It's kind of okay. But it has nothing to do with Dark Phoenix because all of the Phoenix elements have been excised from the film. And that's that. Not only visually, but textually. The The only image of the Phoenix that remains is when Gene blows up and you get this flash image of this fiery creature and then when Charlie and Magneto are playing chess you see this itty bitty little (laughs) visual up in the sky flying away 
and that's it. And it was sad because Sophie was a really great Jean Grey, and all the pieces were there. It just, you know, I mean, again, you go back to the beginning, and Simon wanted it to be a two-part film, Simon Kinberg. The first part would be Phoenix. The second part would be Dark Phoenix. And then Fox just, they didn't want to invest, make the investment. And then other stuff got in the way. 